It's CNET Book Club, the podcast where we talk about books uh, of interest to CNET readers, science fiction, technology, nonfiction, all sorts of things. Scott, what book are we talking about today? We are talking about Walk Away by Cory Doctorow. It explores a lot of far-reaching technological science fiction ideas, but is also really political. It discusses um, fantasies of escaping the economy, escaping government, and rebuilding society on your own, or the the difficulties in doing so. And that's that's just like at the surface level, but it also deals with a whole bunch more stuff. It's kind of a prequel to his first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. And we talk about these books in kind of a, a spoiler light way. We call it a book club, so we assume you've read the book, especially because this one has been out for a while now. It came out earlier in 2017. So we'll talk about things that happen in the book, but I feel it's the kind of book you can't really spoil. So much happens, but it's not like, you know, who done it. It's more about how people react to situations and, and what new ways of living they come up with. So so I, I feel like it, it's not a it's not a conversation you need a lot of spoiler warnings about if you still want to go and enjoy the book and you haven't read it yet, although you should go read it. And it is an ideas book. I think like, you know, I think that's a, a fair way to describe it. It is a book that is about people that are discussing and creating new things. So even though the book itself is full of ideas, I feel like the characters in it are also always discussing ideas and how they tackle these ideas. You've got to be in that mindset. And, and a lot of that is what the book is about. It's still got some a lot of exciting elements to it, but it is it's kind of about manifestos and it's about ideas. The first book that we read, Born by Jeff Vandermeer, uh, and this have, a, have one thing in common, which is that they both are exploring Kind of, I laugh because almost an it is a post-apocalyptic thing, but not exactly. But they do deal with society in a state of of transition, tear down. Born was very far off in this almost allegorical type of a, a future where things have gone really strange. This is kind of like you know a, a few years from now feeling. Even well, it's though also a, it's a utopian novel as opposed to a dystopian novel in yes. the tradition of great utopian novels like um, Things to Come or uh, you know stuff like that. Yeah, and it's very. Uh, both of them deal with the idea of communities. I'd say Walk Away is really about yeah everyone building things together, and that's a theme I think is in a lot of Doctorow's uh, work, which is about uh, people uh, working together taking on authority, finding solutions on their own, empowering yourself. But it also deals with the idea of uh, you know, who's in charge and can you have, can you have groups without leaders? Uh, can, you, can you have that pure utopian society that is, that is not governed in the, in the traditional way? And, and that's what that's, a utopian novel does. It, prevent, exactly. it presents a, a version of the future uh, to perhaps aspire towards a brave new world. That's the one I was thinking of as the, as the kind of classic utopian novel. And it's left to you as the reader to figure out, is this a viable, workable future or or is it one of many possible futures? Uh, and it shows you that that reaching for this sort of utopian ideal, it's not something that's actually manageable, which we may may discover. In a lot of ways, the ultimate utopian science fiction was uh, Star Trek, the, the original series. And part of uh, Gene Roddenberry's premise for it was that we had a, a futuristic utopian society where there was no more hunger or want or need or, or internal conflict within the human race. Everything was now outward looking towards other species outside of the uh, Federation. And, and that's why everything was so you know, clean and bright and cheery on that original show and to a lesser degree in the, in the shows that came after it. Yeah. And in some ways, this, this does feel like that idea of, again, that you can, you can a lot of the book tries to um, explore throwing science and 
your intellect at big ideas and conquering them, which is utopian. You know, for the most part, what we see in the book, I would say sometimes it seems like it's very successful. But the, but there is a question I feel like throughout this book of how successful is it really? That's something we get into with Cory Doctorow. And that's the question of, you know, how much is this really it is it's a messy world. There, there's a lot of stuff. And the whole idea of this book, so the basic premise is that you're walking away from society. You're walking away from everything. These walkaways just kind of live out there. They're out there doing their own thing off grid, building their own grid to the degree to which society tolerates that or doesn't tolerate it as time goes on. But it, it is like, you know, when things don't go well, a lot of the book, they just walk away again. And the idea is like, oh, we'll just do this again. And so there's it's a really interesting theme. It's uh, it does feel one step ahead of uh, of a lot of where post-apocalyptic uh, sci-fi and dystopian sci-fi has been because it is optimistic, but it also deals with wrestling the mess. That's that's a really cool theme right now as we as we are in a lot of messes in the world and we're looking forward forward, not looking forward to it, but we're looking ahead to a lot of things that we're, we're afraid of. This book is about kind of conquering some of those fears. And a lot of it has to do with economic fears and uh, societies of has and have nots and, and accelerating that curve where the advantages and the, and the uh, excess in society goes to a few people at the top where we've run out of room for words almost. They're not millionaires or billionaires in the book. They're, they're Zatas. They're Zatanaires. Yeah. Whatever imaginary high up number that is, there's a handful of people who control basically, and, dare I say, the means of production. <laughs> Impossibly powerful, kind of like in Blade Runner or, you know, an alien franchise with Wayland Yutani, or you have William Gibson with the kleptocracy in, in, in the peripheral. You know, you, you, you feel like you have this, these giant overarching God figures of the economy who have become even more powerful than they are now. It's the tech titans of today, but times 100 and they become uh, multi-generational uh, dynasties where everything is all about passing it down the bloodline. So you have a lot of issues of, uh, you know, genetics yeah. uh, mixed in with that. And looks like uh, Corey's online. Let's give him a let's give him a call. OK, great. Hello there. Hey there, this is uh, Dan uh, Ackerman, and I'm with Scott Stein here at the uh, CNET Studios in New York. Uh, I just want to start very, very quickly uh, just by having you tell us just a very little bit about what the book is, what's it about, what's the what's the big through line on it? So uh, Walk Away, it's my first adult novel since uh, Makers in 2009, so it's been a good long while that I've been thinking about what I have to say to adults as opposed to teenagers, and... and um, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. Uh, I don't think that writing disaster novels is necessarily pessimistic or optimistic. You know, it's not it's not optimism to design a system on the assumption that it will never fail. If you're an engineer and you do that, you don't make something great. You make the Titanic. So, hmm. you know, it is not pessimistic to think, what will we do when this thing breaks down? Because the second law of thermodynamics is uh, not just a good idea, it's the law. Uh, and, and to imagine that maybe we could um, handle that with some grace. So there is, an, in Pulp Fiction, there's this idea that, you know, you can do anything so long as it moves the plot along. I'm all for that. I'm a pulp writer. I like, I like as William Gibson says, I like to have wheels on my tractor when it comes to writing stuff that just kind of chugs along there. Um, but uh, I think that that's created this somewhat unhealthy dynamic among pulp writers where we we really like to fudge the truth about what happens in disasters because it can make the plot so much more interesting. What actually happens in disasters, what's been thoroughly and lavishly documented as having in disasters is that people pull together. Disasters are the moment in which the background refrigerator hum of petty grievance suddenly stops. And you realize that, you know, you're pissing match with your neighbor about, like the fact that when you water your lawn, it gets on his car 
is really irrelevant and you start digging through the rubble to get him out. But in fiction, the way that we like to write it is like the man versus nature versus man story where the building gets knocked down by the earthquake and then your neighbors come over to eat you. And that makes for a really exciting story. But with Walkaway, I decided to write a story about a catastrophe that is saved from becoming uh, an irredeemable disaster by the fundamental goodness of people. It's not to say that it's not a book without conflict, but the conflict in it, I think, is actually a much more interesting conflict than your basic uh, everyone except me is a total bastard who will kill me as soon as look at me if they don't have to worry about the police retaliating. And that's that maybe people around you are actually good people and you're a good person, or at least, you know, a flawed vessel who has good days and bad days. But maybe you don't agree about what is to be done in the face of crisis. Maybe you're both acting in the best of intention with the best of goodwill, and you have an irreconcilable difference. You know, if you've ever won a, a, a dinner table argument at Christmas dinner, you know that fighting with people you love and, and mostly agree with is a lot more hurtful than fighting with people you hate and don't give a damn about. And so in this catastrophe, which is, you know, you're a basic climate and economic catastrophe where the 1% own everything and the seas are rising and there's no reason for most of us to exist because robots are doing our jobs. The, the way that that catastrophe is averted is through walking away, these new bohemians who just walk away from the world, go to the blighted places left behind by climate crisis and industrial collapse, and then use stolen software from the UN High Commission on Refugees to fly drones in the air, locate ruins that can be mined for building materials, and then collectively build effectively giant luxury resorts that anyone's allowed to live in, anyone's allowed to hang out in, and that kind of self-manage with software which is not to say they don't get into fights, but they're the kind of fights that you get into about Wikipedia and not the kind of fights that you get into about, you know, ethnic identity in the Balkans. And everything is chugging along nicely. All of these people who are economically useless have exempted themselves from the world. And, you know, whenever some greedhead gets the weird idea that, like, that uh, plot of land uh, that you're sitting on and the garbage that you're using technically belongs to me, instead of fighting, they just walk away because all garbage is fundable, uh, fungible, as is all blighted land. But then the walkaways are joined by scientists who walk away from the great one percenter project of achieving immortality through technology. They realize that they're complicit in the speciation of the human race, where you know the super rich will become these infinitely prolonged men as gods and will become mayflies who disappear in their rearview mirrors. And so they steal the fire of the gods. They steal the secrets of immortality. They bring them to the walkaways. And once the super rich, who I call the Zotas, once they realize that they're going to have to share all of eternity with us, that's when the Hellfire missiles come out. And that's where the story kind of gets going. I loved in this book uh, a lot of the optimism, which, you know, does cut across uh, what we usually expect, you know, from these types of stories uh, where you feel, you know, an oppression from from something beyond your reach that you can't tackle. Uh, what I thought was really interesting as a theme here uh, was not just... Um, was the presence of default that that group of the ultra rich, the Zadas, that society that you're escaping? Um, but it, it, I felt as I read it, the suggestion, uh, the question of how escapable is it? Um, or sure. if you do escape it, I noticed at the end that the, the suggestion that that you start, you may become the default yourself. Uh, and I was curious about your your take on that, as far as you know the the messiness, or is. Is it a futility there or is there something that's an ongoing process? 
Well, you know, the process by which like bohemians become the establishment, it's like it's a well understood uh, tragic comedy that, you know, and the, I think one of my favorite expressions of this is uh, Mark Twain has this great line where when I was 17, I couldn't believe what an ignoramus my old man was. But by the time I was about 25, I was amazed by how much the old man had learned, right? That a lot of the times your, your youthful disdain for all the norms of society uh, turns into a kind of hardened attitude. Or, you know, Douglas Adams says that anything invented before you're 18 was there forever. Anything invented before you're 30 is marvelous and new and uh, will change the world. And anything invented after that is evil and must be stamped out. So, you know, that that is like, it's a really old and well-established process. The Who sang, Hope I Die Before I Get Old. Abby Hoffman had to confront what it meant to be over 25, having grown up, uh, getting people to chant, don't just trust anyone over 25. And, and you know, his uh, his erstwhile colleague, uh, Jerry Rubin, wrote a book called Growing Up at 30, which is really about what it means to have spent, you know, the first <laughs> 10 years of your political life telling people not to trust anyone over 30, and then the rest of your political life being over 30. So, you know, those are real problems, as is the problem of co-option. You know, in, in there is like, uh, historically, like the Bohemians were hard to co-opt. It took a long time for the radical fringe to become commodified and part of the mainstream, you know, the orgies of the East Village or the outre fashions of Weimar Germany did not really get mainstream. Little bits of it were picked off by sort of paleolithic cool hunters and, and mainstreamed, but it wasn't like grunge, right? Grunge was like six months between, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, dirtiest clubs in Seattle and, you know, Sears. Uh, and now cultures, subcultures are born commodified with few exceptions. It's really hard to make a, a non-commodifiable subculture. And a lot of the ones that are uncommodifiable are uncommodifiable because they're terrible, right? Like there isn't a big, uh, you know, Pepe the Frog, uh, you know, mall store where you can go and get alt-right memorabilia. Uh, no, you know, not the, yet. <laughs> One of the interesting things about MySpace actually was like how long it took for the mainstream to co-opt MySpace because the one thing MySpace really had going for it was this, you know, unbelievably technologically insecure scripting environment that let people do tons of customizations to their pages, which often became like vectors for malware and stuff. But uh, what it meant was that people could really express themselves with the kind of exuberance we hadn't seen since the desktop publishing revolution. And you know, the designers who came up through desktop publishing for all that they had, you know, kind of birthed and then helped commodify the ransom note aesthetic had never, nevertheless would like prefer to break all of their fingers than produce something that looked like a MySpace page. And so you could always tell what was a MySpace page and what was like a thing that was trying to look cool like a MySpace page. So it was trying to draft on MySpace page uh, uh, coolness. Um, you know, and then eventually like back to every every pirate becomes an admiral, uh, you know, those, those kids who were making ugly MySpace pages grew up and became designers working for advertisers, making things that were indistinguishable from ugly MySpace pages. But they derived a certain, you know, they, they were able to carve out a certain period during which they could be as bohemian uh, as they wanted to be without worrying that anyone on, on Madison Avenue would, uh, would find its use for their things. There's a question I had about... Um relating to that and you mentioned about getting old or, or about age and and it, it, when you said that i hadn't thought about it until just now how much age plays into the book 
um, Mm -hmm. and aging and, you know, referring to where they were at the beginning of the book, where they are later in the book, how that impacts. And even I'm thinking about, uh, your, your first book down and out in the magic kingdom, which I read, and this is, this has threads that connect to that, but I, I was fascinated in, in the revisiting of that and how maybe did your perspective change on what that book was then or relating to how it is now or how this came about. But I guess like age and time do seem like uh, big factors in, in the way that people look at their situations. I think about this a lot because I've been writing young adult fiction. And so one of the questions that you get when you write young adult fiction and fiction for adults is sort of what is the essential difference? And, you know, I think that there are a lot of, of easy answers that are invalidated by their, um, exceptions you know the the exceptions don't prove the rule they they invalidate it there's so many any criteria that you choose to name like well a young adult fiction can't have too much sex or a young adult fiction can't have the violence can't be too explicit or young adult fiction can't deal with adult themes or whatever and you can find like super prominent versions of young adult fiction that are much beloved that v- invalidate all those rules so it's really hard to say like what defines young adult fiction. But after giving it a lot of thought, I think I found an answer. And I think that that answer is that young adult fiction can't assume that you have a lot of context Mm. uh, because young people can be really first rate reasoners. Like young people can be really smart, but context is a thing that takes time, right? There are like no Doogie Howser historians, right? Like there are, there are amazing nine-year-old chess players, but there aren't amazing nine-year-old lawyers. And the difference is not the kind of reasoning you have to do to understand the law. It's that all of the context of chess can be absorbed in about 15 minutes. Um, And thereafter, you have the first principles from which you can build up uh, uh, any chess victory. Whereas all of the underlying principles of law or medicine or history, they take a long time. And so one of the things that you get as you get older is you get context. And that gives you the ability to take whatever reasoning you have or that you've developed along the way and apply it to a wider range of examples that can overcome what I, maybe you could call it a sampling error that we sometimes have when we're younger. You know, in science fiction, we say all laws are local and no law knows how local it is. But, you know, the science is they have to contend with with sampling error, right? If you if you um, uh, think you observe a phenomenon that tells you something about the underlying nature of the world, maybe all that's happened is you've, you, you haven't looked widely enough. Maybe you've just found like 15 weirdos who are six sigmas out from the norm and you haven't discovered any general principles. And when you're young, because you just don't have the context, it's easy for your first rate reasoning to lead you down blind alleys and as you get older, not only do you have context, but you also have context about context. So you start to learn, if you're lucky, the humility to understand that maybe your experience was too narrow to really generalize from whatever experience you had. You know, I think like a, a, a common experience I had growing up in kind of like subcultural, countercultural circles is a lot of the people that I knew were into stuff that we might call woo. You know, they maybe they believed in astrology or, you know, herbal remedies or homeopathy or whatever. And uh, or they thought, you know, in the words of that um, bit character, that that comic relief character from Fraser, that they were a little bit psychic, you know. And then as they got older, they started to realize that coincidence happens 
more often than you'd think. And that coincidence looms large in your world. And so it's sometimes easier to remember examples that validate your existing beliefs than to remember the examples that invalidate them. And I think, you know, you learn that in lots of ways. If you like, you know, the if you're lucky, the first time you get into trouble with debt, someone shows you how to make a spending diary and you realize everything you thought you knew about how you were spending is wrong. And, you know, maybe the first time you go on a diet, you keep a, a, a food diary and you're like, oh my God, I, I totally don't eat the way I think I eat. Um, or, you know, you get into cognitive behavioral therapy and you basically create a mood diary, which is what the core of CBT is. And you realize, oh, the, the way that I actually think the world works, the things that I think people say to me and the things that I think they do when I say things, they're wrong. I'm just, I'm just totally wrong. Uh, and that humility and the empiricism that comes with it, I think makes for a kind of, uh, maturity that is very hard to replicate no matter how smart you are. Scott and I actually got in a, a reasonably heated hallway debate this morning about the nature of uh, what I think takes over really the second half of the book, where we move from a lot of the uh, economic and, and cultural aspects of it to the scientific aspect where they they crack the, you know, the code for immortality, uh, which I think is interesting in a way because uh, we talk about how technology can solve all these uh, uh, problems that we think of as being right in front of us, how to make more food, use the 3D printers to uh, take fungible materials and make new things and clothes, and uh, how people in default uh, can basically spend their way out of any problem, but they can't spend their way out of biology. It's only when the scientists are unfettered from, from that uh, default mindset that they're able to do this. Uh, so Scott and I got in a large debate this morning about what the actual meaning of that search for immortality is and, and how valid is it to call what the characters in the book come up with, which is a way to to scan and basically upload a perfect copy of your mind or your consciousness or your brain? Uh, how valid it is to call that a version of the self? Uh, and 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 we we were literally on very opposite sides of this sure. this morning. And and, we, and I'd love to explore a little bit of 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 that. Is is a copy the same thing as the original? What does the original care about the copy? Is the original even aware of it? Or, or as I put it this, or as I put it earlier, uh, if I have my perfect copy and I have achieved digital immortality in that way, if I go out and get hit by a bus, that doesn't do me any good. I'm still not there. Right. Well, I think you've put your finger on some really important things here. Um, so, one of my, do you know the, the the oblique strategies deck that Brian Eno made? So you know he famously made this like deck of cards full of these like gnomic aphorisms, like. Um, do less or do more or listen to the silences. And when he was like recording with Roxy Music or doing other kind of big ambitious things, he would stop the session and oh, just I pull out a card and yeah, say, okay, okay, everybody, we're doing this now. And my favorite one of those oblique strategies is, is um, be the first person to not do something that no one else has ever thought of not doing before. It does sound very gnomic on its face, but when you think about it, there's a lot of uh, historical examples of success being predicated on this kind of thing. So TCP is probably a good example of this, right? Like we, we had um, all these networking protocols that like tried to be, um, you know, symmetrical and verifiable and, and uh, predictable and deterministic. And, you know, Surf and the other uh, ARPANET people, they said like, we're just going to make a thing that sometimes throws packets on the floor and rather than try to just not throw packets on the floor, we're going to make a system so that when the packet falls, we can request it again. And, you know, that 
blossomed. And then like there was, you know, um, the street performer protocol, which like Bruce Schneier and other cryptographers wrote about in the early years of the internet, where they said, well, maybe the business model for the internet is that you demonstrate like that you can add value. You, you do like, imagine you're a, a street performer doing magic tricks. You do a bunch of conjuring tricks that bring in the crowd and you say, I'm not going to do my finale until there's $25 in my hat. I don't care who puts the $25 in. Uh, everybody gets to see the finale, but unless everybody puts the money in the hat, uh, nobody gets to see the finale, right? So this is like the, the Kickstarter model. But the Kickstarter model, all the precursors to Kickstarter were like, well, if people put their money in the hat and the magician walks away without doing the trick, they're going to be really pissed. So we're going to hold on to the money. We'll escrow it until the trick is done. But a lot of the tricks that people wanted to do with crowdfunding were not things that uh, only had labor costs or where there were things where the labor costs were so intensive that they couldn't just um, quit their jobs and do them without some income. And so with all of the money to do the final thing escrowed, they didn't have any money to do the final thing. And then so Kickstarter came along and they were like, oh, we'll just let some people get scammed sometimes, right? We'll make a thing where every now and again, someone will just flake out and you'll lose everything. Uh, and uh, maybe people will continue to support crowdfunders. And they were right. So all of this, like, close enough for rock and roll, be the first person to not do something that no one has ever done before. That's a, that's a really interesting set of examples of, of how we make technological progress and how where our big successes come from by, by whittling away something to its core essentials and, and leaving aside the nice-to-haves and just having the need-to-haves. And in the whole like realm of, of uh, philosophical thought experiments about what is and isn't you, you know, the, the whole, the, like there's this singularity, uh, you know, singularity advocates thought experiment where someone will say, well, I don't think if you uploaded my consciousness into a computer, it'd still be me. And, uh, the, uh, the answer is, well, what if I cut off your fingertip and replaced it with a robot fingertip that worked exactly the same way? Would you still be you? They go, oh, yeah, that'd still be me. Well, what if I cut you off to the second knuckle? How about the third knuckle? How about if I did your hand? How about if I did you to the you know full radial amputation at the elbow? And you just, you, you know, inch by inch, you replace everything in them with robot. And you, then like, then I'm going to do your neocortex. And then I'm going to do your, you know, your your um, corpus callosum and, and so on, right? And eventually, like, you replace all the meat with circuits. And they're like, well, I guess it's still me. And you're like, well, there, you can upload your consciousness and still be you. Um, those arguments that we've had, they all rely on things like Turing tests and um, maybe asking people to replicate feats that they'd done before after Down and the Magic Kingdom came out. We had all these discussions like maybe you know, you could ask a pianist to compose a song and then upload them and ask the composed, the uploaded pianist to compose a song and like objectively evaluate their quality or something. And, and what I realized is that maybe the path to this stuff, at least in the kind of thought experiment version, is this good enough business. Hmm. So in Walkaway, they're like, all of these places that you could go to once you are a computer, once you are a consciousness in a computer, where it might feel really terrible to have given up your body and become software, right? You might start asking all of these really hard questions and then get really sad about it. And so because you're a computer and because computers can do like look ahead, they can say, well, I could compute it this way. I can compute it that way. Or I can compute it the third way and kind of do low resolution renderings of what those outcomes are. You could, in fact, be on a computer that's so fast that it could try three, four, five, five hundred, five thousand versions 
of what you could think next within all the things that you might plausibly think and just pick out the ones that don't give rise to the existential crisis. And it creates this kind of like tautological mental peace where the reason you don't have a nervous breakdown is you're avoiding all the paths in which you don't have a nervous breakdown. And since all those paths are like definitionally something that as, as far as the rules of simulation are concerned, you might plausibly think it's still you. And the question of like, do you, do you care whether it's like, do you care about the distinction between the you that might have a nervous breakdown and the you that might not have a nervous breakdown? That question is answered by never going down the path where you are ever the you who cares about having a nervous breakdown. And so it never comes up. And it's this very tautological thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the answer is that like lather, rinse, repeat that for a hundred years and everyone alive is someone who is okay with that existential crisis because everyone else committed suicide by not having their consciousness uploaded into a computer. Now, do you also, this was part of our, our argument this morning, do you also commit suicide by having your consciousness uploaded and then basically abandoning, you know, giving up on, on the physical life. I think of a, uh, of a scene right at the very end where uh, there's a discussion about two basically younger characters, children of other characters. Uh, mm-hmm. And someone says, Oh, well they gave up their bodies years ago. They're floating around doing this or that. So did those, this is, this was my question to Scott this morning. I said, did those two characters right. uh, to maintain a little bit of, of spoilerishness here, uh, did they upload themselves and then what? Jump off a cliff? I I, I was unclear. That was, that was one of the few haunting moments. That was one of the most haunting moments in the book for me. It was right at the very end. Really, a little bit of a gut punch. I was like, what happened there? I really wanted to to dive a little deeper into that little bit of backstory, and it really uh, disturbed me for for a little while, frankly. Well, that would be a fun little novella to write someday. Um, yeah, I mean. So one of the things about uh, science fiction, going back to Douglas Adams, is that like if you've got your towel, people assume you've got your toothbrush and your uh, and and um, your cologne and your razor and your uh, change of clothes, and they'll loan you any of those things that you might happen to have lost. And so in science fiction, if you kind of add enough plausible details, your reader will assume that you know all the rest. I have no idea what those people did. <laughs> Maybe they jumped off a cliff. I, I really thought about like, it for a long yeah, time. I was, very bo- I was very bothered by it. Scott was unbothered by it. He thought I was, they were I was okay he was with like, that. let him kill himself. That's fine. I was more bothered. Yeah. yeah, I was more bothered by by a part earlier on, which sort of suggested the challenges in, in simulation or of, of replication. Uh, you know, when, when uh, Limpopo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because I'm reading yeah. the book, the character disappears and then comes back. They've been interacting with with the the version that's been been backed up and has been their friend. But then you have this much aged real version. Mm. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating because she didn't seem to want to have anything to do for the most part with the version that was backed up that they were referring to. It's it was a, a suggestion of like maybe not maybe not horror about it, but it was like a you know, well, I just, it's like an old backup on a computer. Like, you know, that's, that's not really of interest to me. And they do seem to prefer in the end, the, the, I guess the real, the question of the real version. Um, but I thought it was interesting because it, it sort of effortlessly at times juggles with, with dis early on, uh, multiple versions and instances like a, like a local AI on your phone. Um, and everybody's just fine with that. And then, uh, but then you have a question of what happens when you have the real person there. Um, is it still a status difference? Diff and merge is is an interesting thing because it's one of the most canonically solved problems in technology, right? Like the way that we make code is with diff and merge, hmm. you know, which is to say that we like log all the changes to 
a software project. And then um, when there are people who disagree about how to solve a problem or when, it, when a problem turns out to be a dead end, a solution turns out to be a dead end, we roll back to earlier versions. But when you actually look at like all of the context around diff and merge, like when you look at the commentary and people's pull requests on GitHub, you see that it uh, that the seemingly cold rational objective process of diff and merge is actually like uh, empirical face wash for a messy, hard human problem of like evaluating what we mean when we say that's better and that's worse. Hmm. And so, you know, one of the issues that comes up a lot about Turing tests and uploaded consciousness, this thought experiment we have, and, and I want to say, I don't really believe in uploaded consciousness. I think that it's a, it's a lovely thought experiment. I don't think it's a thing, but you know, when we have these thought experiments, but we have these philosophical arguments, we say things like, well, you take the pianist, you upload them, you ask them to compose a symphony. And if it's the same kind of symphony, then it's, then it's the same person. The reality though, is that like, if you take that pianist uh, and you wait 10 years and you ask them to compose a symphony, it would be pretty surprising if they composed the same kind of symphony they would have composed 10 years earlier it would probably be kind of an indictment of the pianist as an artist right if right, you're like right. if you haven't grown and so the question is if i upload a version of you on the assumption that you're dead uh, and activate this uploaded version of you on the assumption that you know you died when you're when you fell over rickenbacker falls or whatever uh, and then 10 years later you come back and the version of you that I activated from your backup still likes me. And the version of you that's been like climbing out of the, the chasm below Rickenbacker Falls for 10 years and cursing me for having abandoned you is, is pretty pissed, doesn't want to have anything more to do with me, which one is a more faithful reproduction of you? And, you know, there's not an answer to that question, right? Like there isn't like a, an empirically correct answer. All answers to that question are actually like political choices or philosophical choices. They're not, um, they're not like numerical empirical outcomes. And so that that whole dynamic was supposed to surface some of that. Supposed to surface some of those questions, and and also to like surface just the overall idea that a lot of the times when we talk about things being optimal, uh, we are we are claiming or quantitative uh, superiority for something that is wholly qualitative. You know, the, the, I, I sometimes say, and I think there's a line in the book that's more or less like this, that the, the role of the modern economist is to use, uh, can I swear on this podcast? Go right ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The role of the modern economist is to use um, shitty math to prove that selfishness is Pareto optimal. So like to, to prove that the best outcome for society is for like people to be selfish jerks. Yeah. And, uh, and you see it a lot, right? If you look at like neoclassical economists, you look at the Chicago school or whatever, there's just tons of this that like, actually, you know, Milton Friedman actually has this, this awesome rant, you know, one of the godfathers of the Chicago school has this awesome rant about how corporations that try to do good or be humane or, or in any other way, uh, spend a penny more than they need to just to be uh, like to be moral entities, those corporations are doing wrong. That the only job of the corporation is to return maximum value to the shareholders. Like if if you can save a million and one dollars by polluting and then pay a million dollar fine for having polluted, that one dollar belongs to the shareholders, and you have a fiduciary duty to dump all that toxic waste into those kids' uh, water supply, right? And so, like, 
surfacing that rhetorical move, the the uh, transmogrification of the qualitative to the quantitative by the application of shitty math, uh, is something that I really wanted to get across in the book because you know it's it's like it's a didactic book. It's you know it's the 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 woke Occupy version of Atlas Shrugged, and one of the things it's supposed to be is a set of cognitive tool uh, tools for for arguing with people about what the world should look like. You know, one of the one of the most profound acts of political rhetoric in my lifetime was Margaret Thatcher dismantling the welfare state in the UK and declaring that there there is no alternative and and by which she meant stop trying to think of an alternative. And today, you know, you have these people saying, well, maybe this is we're in the decline of capitalism and then you're like, well, what would happen if capitalism disappeared what would that look like it's very hard to imagine in a nuts and bolts way what capitalism would look like uh, you know thatcher stole the uh, imagination of a generation our ability to imagine a different way of living what are your thoughts i mean going back to dan out in the magic kingdom which was written in a different era uh, it, you know like mm-hmm. it, not, not too long ago but still it, the times we're in now are so so weird and and one of the themes that was in that book, which shows up here too, is um, it's really heavy. In fact, that was in that book, reading about Wuffy and the reputation economy when I read it was kind of like a cyberspace moment, like where, you know, that that term lingered with me when I thought about social media later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we are so deep into gamification or even post it in some ways, but we, we still talk about so much. Social media has it. I was going to ask for your thoughts on reputation economy and the book's attempts to battle that and Mm -hmm. you know whether in the end suggesting that there's a does that side lose out or you know is it possible to 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 work without it or what are the challenges there excellent question it's a it's a thing not known by many people the term meritocracy you know society based on merit where awards are, are given by merit it was a satirical term it was actually coined by the guy who also founded the Open University, where I'm a, I'm, I'm a professor in, in the UK. He wrote a novel, a satirical novel. And in that satirical novel, rich people kid themselves that the reason they're rich is they're better than everyone else. And they say, we live in a meritocracy. And like it's this very beautiful bit of circular reasoning where like all the best people I know are rich. Therefore, uh, wealth is allocated in our society according to according to merit and you can tell that those people have merit because of how rich they are mm. and you know we we kind of inhabit that world today you know whenever anyone talks about like well why why should the children of rich people not be able to buy their way into harvard actually there's a an economist tyler cohen who's like my poster child for for the kind of economic reasoning that makes me bananas who just published a thing in in bloomberg uh, where he's a columnist about um uh, how Harvard should let as many mediocre legacy students in as as want to come, but charge them full freight so that they can use the money to subsidize the tuition of people who are actually good at, uh, you know, who are actually good students. <laughs> like that's the, it's like the apotheosis of, of um, shitty meritocratic reasoning. And part of the point of Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom was to show that uh, meritocracy is also a rich get richer society. That it's like it's not 
a, uh, a meritocracy that if the way things work is like being held in high esteem gives you the opportunity to do things that people view as worthy of more esteem, then some accident of birth or circumstance can set you on a path where you end up with this unbridgeable chasm between the reputation you have accrued and the reputation of everyone around you. And that it will be totally unmoored from whatever fundamental it's supposed to be measuring, whatever whatever uh, objective uh, measure of merit it's supposed to be measuring. And instead, it will become an amalgam of uh, what today we call privilege, right? Like, so like people will ask you first to get up on stage and make the speech because the last speech you gave was so great. And so then everyone will think that you're a great speechifier because you did another great speech and then you'll get more chances. And then the the other one is the it'll be um, generated through a kind of cognitive bias that um, once you know someone is a good speechifier, then you think more favorably about every speech you hear them give. And so you, you afford them more esteem for what they've done than you would some rando. And, and you know, there's lots of examples of this. My favorite is that, um, this woman during world war one in Toronto, her husband and sons were all off fighting the war. And so to kind of cope with the loss and anxiety, she cloistered herself in the university of Toronto library and, um, read all of the history books and wrote this incredibly idiosyncratic history of the world that's like hilariously wrongheaded <laughs> in in that it you know she just she hadn't read widely enough right she, she it's like basically if all you know about history is this collection of history books oh, wow. you would think that this is how history went and there were big gaps and things missing and no one wanted to publish it and she sent the manuscript to hg wells who published it under his name his two-volume history of the world is is he plagiarized from her wow. and that book which you know attracted a lot of kind of indifference when it was being shopped by this this housewife who was worried about her child and children and and, and husband off in the trenches in France. That that book, once it had H.G. Wells' name on it, was thought of as like being daring and making really interesting leaps that other people hadn't made, as opposed to just having been ripped off from someone who didn't know what he was what he was doing. Yeah, there's a line early, later in the book relating you mentioned about. Uh, meritocracy or the continuing of that that the that the very wealthy said that there was something that one of the characters had not been able to name but realized that they had no imposter syndrome yeah which I yeah exactly great. yeah yeah if you you know if you're like if you're in any way honest with yourself you know you look around you and you go like god i really did get lucky you know i went through like writing programs with people who are as good or better a writer than i am and i and i have had more success as a writer than they have and, you know, some of those people work their butts off and it's just luck, right? I, you know, right place, right time, won the lottery ticket. Uh, you know, you can think of luck as being, you can think of like the publishing industry as being like this giant immune system trying to protect publishers from having to give writers too much money. And every now and again, it gets um, uh, uh, like a little cut and it, its skin is swarming with so much bacteria, like, like uh, you know, all these writers trying to break in, that even the smallest gap in its defenses is immediately exploited by someone. And, you know, like, if you get a cut on your finger and you get a staph infection there, it's not because the staff that just happened to be close to the cut had great insight into where it should uh, breed itself if, if it wanted to maximize its chances for reproducing inside your body. It's because, like, every cut that you had was going to be infected by staff, you know, or every crack in the sidewalk will have a dandelion growing out of it, you know, and it's not because those seeds were better. Uh, and so if you're, if you're like in any way able to like look yourself in the mirror and not kid yourself, you know, you got lucky. 
but so many rich people that I know and have met really think that they have merit, right? That like they got rich. The reason they're rich and the person who's cleaning their toilet isn't is because they did something extraordinary that the person who's cleaning their toilet couldn't or didn't or didn't work hard enough for, as opposed to like they just lucked out. And that goes back to the idea of like a, like a, an order and a system that you can follow where like a, you know, how to succeed or how you can follow our path or, you know, why Redwater is so interested in bringing people back to the fold. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're, um, you know, the, the, this is why the privilege debate gets so, you know, so heated is because its implication isn't that you didn't work hard. It's that you uh, didn't work any harder than all of those people you've been looking down your nose at and your, your lack of empathy for them and their plight, which was really dominated by, um, you know, which was really like uh, allowed you to, to walk past them, you know, as they sat on the sidewalk with their hand out or asked you for a favor or whatever, that, that thing that you told yourself about why you didn't owe them anything, that that was just bullshit and that you're a horrible person. Right. And that's why when we talk about privilege, people are like, I worked hard too. And, and, the people who are talking about privilege are like, it's not that you didn't work hard. It's just that like you got lucky and you know, if the things were reversed, it could be you there, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go you. Well, the old saying about the person who was uh, born on third base and thought he hit a triple. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I forgot about that one. And we, we mentioned, you mentioned um, Douglas Adams several times uh, this morning. We were talking about, uh, Scott, Scott mentioned the concept of deadheading, which he was very interested in. And I, and I told him that that reminded me very much of uh, the scene where uh, uh, they encounter a rock purposes. star uh, who, yeah. who's spending a year dead for tax purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Zephod Beeblebrox is spending a year dead for tax purposes. I love that line. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, in part, it's like deadheading, I think is for people who who struggle with attention and boredom which i mean i think everybody does but uh yeah. some of us maybe more than others um deadheading is like this fantasy that you could get on an airplane and just have your your mind stop you know one of the one of the things that we're spending a lot of time talking about in the age of the smartphone is the social and cognitive purpose of boredom uh, the, there's Anish Zimarodi did that bored and brilliant thing, which, you know, was a project she did on her podcast and then became a, a book about deliberately allowing yourself to become bored, like pledging never to take mm-hmm. your phone out of your pocket while you're, um, while you're, uh, in motion, uh, yeah. deleting the app you use the most, you know, you put a logger on your phone to see which app you use the most and you delete the thing that sucks up the most time and so on in order to deliberately allow yourself to become bored so that you can torture your mind into uh, like thinking of interesting new things. I actually uh, figured out that the reason that um, when I go see really long movies, which they all are these days, mm-hmm. I keep having to duck out of the theater to um, make notes on my phone is because the uh, like any movie that's like two and a half, three hours long yeah. is just so shittily edited that it's boring and it's the only time I get bored because in every other circumstance at the very least I'd have some earbuds and I'd be listening to a podcast. And so I like ideas come flooding in. I was like, am I being inspired by these shitty movies? It's like, no, I'm just being bored by them. I, and it's the only time I get bored anymore. And so 
you know, as someone who travels a lot on planes and spends a lot of time sitting in lounges and whatever, I have spent a lot of time fantasizing about being able to just shut off my mind, right? Like if only I used to want to like found an airline called Ninja Air, where, you know, the day you're meant to fly, a ninja breaks into your house and blow darts you into unconsciousness, wraps you in, you know, cling film with a with a straw coming out of your nose to breathe through, puts a tracking label on you, stacks you like cordwood in the cargo hold of the plane, picks you up at the other side, brings you to your hotel, unpacks your suitcase, puts you in your pajamas, tucks you into the bed, you know, opens the window, blow darts you with the antidote, and then jumps out the window and repels down the building as you yawn and stretch in a new city, right? Like that is basically my ideal travel experience. As as pioneered uh, by what they used to do to Mr. T on the A-team where they had to drug him before every flight. (laughs) Yeah, Murdoch, I'm not getting on the plane. And then they give him a little drink and he'd fall asleep and he'd wake up and he'd be there. Well, dude, this is what we do with pets in the cargo hold. Right, you know, yeah. you get the you get the, the whatever doggy Xanax, and you you dope your dog before you stick it in the cage in the cargo hold. I need that disconnection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, doctor, too, it's for my dog. Doctor, we're too really surrounded. It. Yeah, we're too surrounded by tech here at CNET. Like the last time I was bored like that was really summer camp when we used to not have any tech at all. We would just sit with a notebook in the trees. Well, maybe that's why meditation is so big now. We're having such a renaissance moment yeah. for for, yeah. for meditation and quote unquote mindfulness, which is really clearing the mind and concentrating on. Uh, your breathing or your mantra or whatever version it is you're doing because it prevents mm-hmm. that sort of uh, it's quieting that monkey mind as as they call it improvs a bit like that too yeah yeah and you know like i think that there's a wider phenomenon at work here which is that um when there are things that are hard to come by and i, I want to so let me roll back here I'm about to make an argument about evolutionary psychology and every argument about evolutionary psychology is is at its core bullshit because it's non-falsifiable, right? Like it's, and it, we can pick and they're just, they're just stories, right? Like I imagine that my ancestors during the 200,000 years they spent in the Savannah had problems finding carbohydrates and that's why we can't stop eating carbohydrates. But like, I don't know. Right. But here's my, here's my bullshit made up hypothesis about this, which is that the things that were scarce, but vital in the world when we were becoming modern hominids, if not behaviorally modern hominids, those things are things that we seek, uh, but do not know how to stop consuming when we arrive at them, because there's no reason to develop an off switch for something that is never abundant enough to get a sufficiency of. And that part of the project of industrialization is the project of figuring out how to produce in abundance things that during that period were not abundant in part because markets reward uh filling people's uh desires and we are good at desiring and bad at not desiring those things that were scarce in our evolutionary history like sex or carbohydrates or stimulus or um you know i think one of the interesting and underappreciated ones that my friend patrick ball has been writing about lately is um uh, the ability to have like to convert emotional labor into uh, into paid uh, transactional labor. So like the ability, like sex is a good example, right? Like it's very hard to know deterministically if you're going to have sex with someone, right? You can meet them and get on with them, or you can be married to them, or whatever. And you know, part of the whole debate about cons- about about consent right now is that does not automatically entitle you to have sex with them. They they have to want to have sex with you too. And it's hard to know under what circumstances they will. But like we have brothels, right? And in the brothel, sex has a rate card. 
and like it tells you exactly what it costs to have which kind of sex. I, I assume I don't spend a lot of time in brothels, but uh, you know we have lots of examples of that where like um, uh, if you want to have someone. Uh, promise and and absolutely make good on that promise to take care of you in your dotage or if you have a stroke and need someone to bathe you and wipe your butt one way to do that is to get married right but a lot of people who you know when when one partner becomes incapacitated over the long term discover that the marriage that they thought they had been quote unquote investing in all those years isn't going to pay off that the other person is going to effectively declare bankruptcy and walk away and then there's no one to wipe their butts and so if we can convert that to a commercial relationship, right? You can hire an RN to come in and take care of you. Then um, you you can replace the very difficult, like transcendentally hard business of predicting which of your relationships will deliver to you the emotional labor that you need into a totally deterministic process that only demands that you be rich and then you can get all or or at least have money or at least have more money than the people around you that in order to to realize all of the um the benefits of that emotional work but the the every one of those things where we where we industrialize or commodify something that's scarce in the world and replace it with something that's deterministic and can be had on demand ends badly right it ends with uh obesity or it ends with um you know, hollow sexual existence that doesn't have the emotional fulfillment, or you know, it, it's uh, Patrick, uh, my my friend who's who's been talking about this uh, emotional labor business. He points out that the most suicidal demographic in America right now, the people most likely to kill themselves, are well-off white men, well-off middle-aged white men, and his thesis is that um, well-off middle-aged white men. Um, because they have the privilege of buying their way out of uh, emotional labor, out of having to establish personal relationships with people in order to survive in the world, they lack the weak ties that act as a kind of resilient safety net for, for them when they struggle, that they, they can buy their way into splendid isolation and that that works well but fails very badly. And so I think that like we have a lot of stuff in our world like attention or stimulus where left to their own um, devices, markets will effectively oversupply it. And because of our, the, the, our cognitive history, our evolutionary history, we don't know how to stop consuming, or at least some of us don't know, like, like the, the first two sigmas of us don't know how to stop consuming it. And we end up over consuming it to the point where it starts to like actively harm us. And so, I mean, again, like we can't invalidate that hypothesis. It's not a, it's not a false, it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's just an observation that might turn into a thesis if someone had a cool experiment they could run, but like we have no way of knowing if that's actually true. And then people come up with intermittent fasting as a trend and then right. write a book about that and uh, turn it into a cottage industry. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Like intermittent fasting as a way to correct for it. Patrick thinks that um, church is what we do to correct for uh, social isolation. That like a bunch of people who you sort of know and make eye contact with and like shake their hands. And then you do this like super, you know, physically satisfying thing of making music with them. You honor births and deaths and marriages. You sort of see them around. And it's like the, all those relationships might be relatively superficial, but um, there are so many weak ties, you know, uh, superficial relationships that 
one of them will will firm up or one or more of them will firm up in all likelihood when you reach the uh, the the point where you really need some support and vice versa. And so you you um you know like that that it kind of lets you it kind of acts as a hedge or like a like an offset for um this this you know toxic behavior this this like out of control behavior. It's a really interesting idea. You know, he talks about he wrote this essay about it and published it and he said, you know, I I happened to get lucky and fall in with this group of people who put on a folk festival a couple of times a year and meet, you know, more or less weekly and we sing and we honor births and deaths and marriages and stuff and we're perfectly secular, but it isn't like in every other regard indistinguishable from a church. And he says it saved my life. It's why my I I merely have depression instead of suicidal depression now. Uh, because I am able to uh, to cultivate these ties, right? To to actually move from this purely transactional world that left to my druthers, I would dive into and move into this emotional reciprocal world where I have to care about people and people have to care about me in order for all of us to get along and get stuff done. Which is the classic weak ties, that sort of light relationship with people, uh, which people almost use uh, a Facebook for in a way. That's their mm-hmm. collection of, of non-physical weak ties now to people they've met over the years, world classmates. Uh, and, and, and that replaces that, I think, for a lot of people, although I'm not sure it's as good. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's also like, is going to the gym as good as having an active lifestyle? And, and, you know, you can, you can think, or is, or are substituting, substituting stevia for sugar, an adequate way to uh, survive, you know, whatever. So I guess as a note to go, to go out on, I think, I don't want to say what it can do for people, but, you know, people read books, they get inspired, they think about things, but it does seem like a book about freeing yourself, freeing yourself to fail or, or failing into solutions you know that there is experimentation you know is it is it about like allowing yourself the ability to experiment and fail or um do you have to find a safe group to do it it does remind me of improv in a way like you know there's mm. like trust falls like you know do you have to get into the right group to do that it seems lucky that uh to some degree the walkaways existed and that people knew where to go you know but mm. if you didn't have that could could a group spontaneously develop those rules um i don't know just what are your thoughts about that so I want to start by saying that science fiction writers are not fortune tellers, and the ones who think they are are like horrible people. <laughs> like you, we we don't know, we can't predict the future. We're Texas marksmen, right? We fire the shotgun into the side of the barn and then draw the target around the place where the pellets went into, mm-hmm. and that's great because if fortune telling is a thing, like if the future is foreordained, then there's no reason to get out of bed because nothing we do today is going to make a difference. So I'm not trying to predict the future, but I am trying to like in that you know, response to Margaret Thatcher business, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to imagine a future, right? I'm trying to imagine an alternative. Because once you can imagine an alternative, you can you can be moved to, to work for something better. You don't have to know exactly where you're gonna land up, but you have to be able to imagine that you could land up somewhere other than here. And so what I try to do in, in my fiction or what I've been kind of doing with, with some of my fiction anyway, is starting really far down with the goal of of what a, a nice place to live might be. And then writing intermediate books, books that are kind of halfway there, trying to bridge like, well, how would we get, what would it look like if we were halfway to that great world? What would it look like if we were halfway to the halfway mark? I think it's a thing that Kim Stanley Robinson has done a lot too. You know, if you think about um, the Mars books and then uh, um, yeah. the 2312 and then Aurora and then New York 2140, and and also William Gibson's been doing it, not necessarily with utopian worlds or positive worlds, but with thinking about like 
how a future might arrive. So he wrote the peripheral mm-hmm. and then he did um, the thing with Butch Guise, the, the comic um, Archangel, which is kind of, he says it's not in the same con- continuity, but it like, it plays with the same ideas and kind of gives a hint of how you might get there. And now he's got the agency, which is kind of halfway between those two. So it's, it's the same, same approach like that. It's a bit like a Monte Carlo simulation or like range finding with a mortar, where you know you overshoot and then you undershoot and then you triangulate between or you you go halfway in between and you just try to refine your your guesses. And the thing that I tend to stress in my work and in my activism is how to design systems that fail gracefully. So it, it, it's really hard to know what will work, but it's much easier to figure out how to make things so that when they fail they fail without exploding and showering everyone around them with white hot shrapnel. And so what can we do not to just make something that produces well, but that when things go wrong, has us cooperate to fix them? Because we know for sure that the one thing that isn't going to get the lights turned back on when disaster turns them off is grabbing your bug out bag and hiding in the hills, right? Like by definition, none of those people are part of the solution. You know, at the very, the very best thing you can say about them is they got the hell out of the way while people were getting on with the real work of starting civilization again, right? And so what do we do to change people's intuition without losing the productivity dividends so that we work well and fail well, so that we take care of each other when we need it, so that people will take care of you when you need it? I want to keep talking about this for like another four hours, actually. <laughs> but it's such a fascinating question. It, it's something that, you know, you want to be able to tackle it more yourself after reading the book. You know, it, I mean, I guess in a good way, it makes you want to read more. And like you say, um, it, it makes you want to dig more into the problems and find find ways to get to solutions, which is which is hopefully the best goal that the book can get to. Because it's true. You want to find like-minded people. And that's you want to find other people like that to talk to, which I think is what, what the kind of the magic in the book. Well, that's the thing that the internet does better than anything else is it lowers the transaction costs of forming groups. You know, it's like, like I always say, you know, when I was an activist in the, in the eighties, 98% of my job was transcribing addresses onto envelopes, sticking stamps on them, and then photocopying stuff and putting it in the envelopes. And the other 2% was thinking of what we put in the envelope. And the internet has found, has made all of those things effectively free and so they've given us, you know, what, what Clay Shirky calls the cognitive surplus to think really hard about what we put in the envelope. And that's great, right? You know, finding people who think like you, it's like, it's just, you know, searching Reddit or Facebook or, you know, wherever, finding the right, finding the right hashtags on, on Twitter. And this is why people who deride hashtag activism, I think are talking out of their butts. Mm-hmm. Because if you've done the hard work of activism, it's not just like, you know, they talk a lot about shoe leather activism, ringing people's doorbell and saying, you know, if you heard about Upton Sinclair, he wants your vote. It's like figuring out which doorbells to ring and and developing a message that makes ringing those doorbells work. And that's the thing you need to be able to find other people for. It's not the whole problem. But we can't solve the problem without it. It's the like necessary but insufficient precondition for solving the problem. And on that note, I think I'm going to say I, I feel like we went a little bit over 20 minutes. <laughs> I know. But it's been incredibly super, enjoyable. This has been great. This has been fantastic. And and thank you so much for taking the time oh, to uh, chat guys. with us today. And and we both uh, in, enjoyed the book greatly. Yeah, I really much. appreciate that. That's really great to hear. No, thanks. I've been reading your work for a long time. And, and so it was, it was really great to be able to talk to you. It's yeah. mutual. Thank you so much. Excellent. Okay. Bye. 
I was reminded at, at, at the very end, we were talking about the, the uh, learning through failure, and, and the most important thing to know is what happens when things fail and how you, how you respond to it. To turn it towards a slightly more pop culture TV version of that, that's the Kobayashi Maru scenario, uh, where how you face <laughs> death is at least as important as how you face life. It's a good, it's a good note for this. There's a lot. I want to go back and listen to this again. There is a tremendous amount to unpack. It was great to have Cory Doctor on for all this time. And much like the book, there are a lot of other ideas that just, you know, came pouring forth. And I think made me want to go back and look at look at the book as well. But it, it does bring up there's a lot of interesting questions here and not not always easy to answer them. We spent a lot less time talking about synthetic human brains in a cloud somewhere yeah, than I thought we, we would. We never got to all we, that. We, we touched on it, but we, then we, we went into all these other super interesting uh, areas uh, with, with uh, and then with Blade Runner 2049 coming out, I thought we'd be able to uh, uh, circle into a little bit of that time because that's that the stuff. same sort of like, who's who's a real human being and who's not? Who Do you determine that for yourself? Do you make that decision? Yeah, is there, is there a, a, a checklist somewhere? Even going back, not just the Blade Runner, the new movie and the old movie, uh, we talked about this er- earlier, the original book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, mm-hmm. uh, which which is less of a mystery about who's human and who's not, but in a way touches on more of these issues in that the, the Deckard character in that is more of a bureaucrat. And he's uh, not, there, there's no hint that he's a replicant in that in that original novel, which I think I read when I was in college. I've never read it. Uh, but the world it's he's, he's living in is 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 much uh, it, it's much more deserted. It's less crowded. It's not like an urban uh, dystopian a Soylent Green too many people scenario. It's actually it's actually the complete opposite. And he's just a hapless bureaucrat. Uh, trying to survive in a world where, frankly, there are no animals left, which gets hinted at in the movies where you see the fake owls and fake other animals. That's actually a huge part of it. Right. The animals were all wiped out by a plague, and that's why real animals are so valuable. And anyone who has a, a fish or a bird or a snake, it's a robot one. And and, and that gets played out. So, so that difference between even in nature, real nature versus simulated nature, you know, is, is the simulated version real enough? At what point does it become real? And I, I think we see this in all the arguments over the years of, about whether Harrison Ford is a robot or not. It's true. And and the whole uploading consciousness story, which is really nice to hear Corey Doctor talk about how he's not, a, you know, he's not on the side of believing that's a possibility. So we got that answer because sometimes some people do. I mean, you never know. And not that it that's almost sometimes aside from the book itself. But that is a longstanding tradition in science fiction, obviously. And there are a lot of great books. Rudy Rucker's software trilogy gets into that a lot. And a lot of recent films discussing AI and consciousness, Douglas Hofstetter. Like, there's a lot of interesting questions about that. So it was nice to see in that. But it's interesting to hear that in some ways the book is about that, but it's not. It kind of does sidestep it. Like, it's kind of, it's one issue among many. Yeah, it's not there at the beginning. It comes in about halfway through and becomes a really big deal. Uh, but then you realize the quote unquote real world interjects into that again when the uh, when when, when the uh, soldiers show up yeah. and then and, and the fighting starts. But but it starts off with I mean, we wrote we were talking earlier about how we love the beginning with the Communist Party, which is literally a party collective that just kind of took the communist name. It's a party. That sounds like a great idea. Oh, and we're also going to take over old factories and print out uh, uh, you know furniture for people while we're having this like rave, this like secret illegal rave. There are parallels between this and thinking of the printing out of William Gibson's uh, the peripheral in terms of, I mean, obviously there's always things floating around in the world and kind of become shared elements, but of the the fabbing, uh, the the idea of groups gathering and fabbing, and Cory Doctorow had explored that even before that in other books of his, and also about those oligarchs, the, the kleptocracy, the klepts, those groups that controlled everything 
And here also, you you know, you have two different classes. That's something that seems to be, and maybe it's an increasingly common theme in society where we do have an increasing amount of wealth concentrated at the top. It's an, it's an ongoing increasing awareness. I feel like that's emerging in a lot of recent science fiction books. Maybe that also becomes part of the post-apocalyptic storyline, but it is about the haves and the have-nots. And uh, science fiction, yeah. going back again to that, uh, my, my Star Trek original series reference from before, reflects what's happening now and, and, and always has, and people can, can always find that. Uh, it is interesting that 3D printing, in a way, is the star of so much science fiction or so much speculative fiction uh, when we're still waiting for it to really kind of take off here outside of like a niche industry. Because it is fascinating and it can be the solution to so many things, but it's not here yet. I know I want to print burgers and organs, but for I can the most make you a keychain. Key I can make you the little adapter for your 45 record to go on a regular record player. I can do one of those. An action figure. A lens cap and a phone case if you don't want the kind that goes over the front of the phone. Just the back of the phone phone case. I can 3D print that for you. Uh, you can no pay problem. up for some jewelry. It is a fantasy. I mean, I think the book's a fantasy too. I think it, it really is. Like you say, it goes back to our original thing at the top of the podcast, a utopian fantasy. Yeah, that that's what a utopian novel is. It's not a realistic yeah. view of what will happen. It's exploring a possible future where everything works out in one particular way, although it doesn't work out in others. Not wish fulfillment because no one would want this like ruined world. It's it's what humans can aspire to if everything, you know, goes right uh when they try to like start their own societies or, or remake society or 3D print themselves a new society. Dr. O's website craphound.com I've, I've always really liked he also makes a lot of his previous books all of them i think available free in a variety of uh user contributed formats creative commons and um you know you can just pick your format and read them so there's no reason not to read his work because it's all out there on his site and uh that's actually a really cool thing because it just allows you to catch up on some some great ideas cool i wish we had more time to talk about more books but but we'll save them for next time yeah we got the next set of worlds we're going to explore, the next set of books. And we talked about some before, but we got so many more books we want to read. That's true. That's true. Well, we're, we're, we're going to have to move this up to like weekly or something instead of like monthly slash quarterly. I'm such a slow reader. <laughs> You're faster than I am. I was really slow. I, I just get in the subway, get my Kindle out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. All right. We'll leave people here. I'm just going to mention because we didn't at any other point. I'm Dan Ackerman. You can find me on Twitter at, at Dan Ackerman. I'm Scott Stein. You can find me on Twitter at JetScott. Please join us again for the CNET Book Club whenever we finish reading another book.